0: oh tom i'm here but i'm playing in pain yeah you mean like my entire career well, <laughs> well some of which i provoked but uh <laughs> well yes know. Yeah. but uh no it's just uh i tell you yeah, i overextended myself a little bit and i'm paying the price
1: okay why don't we that's the promo and then we'll come back and talk about it right after this with the van Doug Spenthal, Walzer Automotive Group, com.
2: Well, we've been talking about this, and it seems timely to talk about Walzer to you. We started it in the early days of the pandemic, and pandemic, and it was so popular, we've continued it. So basically, if you're within 30 miles of a Walzer dealership, and you need service, you can set an appointment. We'll come pick up your car, service it, drop it off, and just charge ya up the butt. No, I'm just kidding. It's
3: normal <laughs> pricing.
2: All the delivery you and stuff. charge up the butt, really. That's one of our new marketing slogans I thought we'd try out.
1: I charge you up the butt.
2: Now you know yeah, why I'm not all in marketing me. anymore. Well,
1: that's <laughs> true. It's a very good point you're making. It
2: also works for sales. If you want to have a car dropped off to test drive, you can do that. Just go to walzer.com for the details.
1: There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Walzer Automotive Group, walzer.com. Michael Bryant, Brad Sean Bryant, what's the latest? Got a, we have a very special guest coming up. Mike's got a story to tell, but I got to read this because there's a picture of Jacob Fry. And I don't know Jacob Fry. Jacob, what's the number here again? Well, I forgot. Oh,
2: 561
0: 228 4061.
2: Yeah, there you go. Two, two, eight. So, Jacob,
1: Colin, I know you listen. So, uh, it's it's not a negative thing. I just love, there's a picture of Jacob Fry. And again, I don't know Jacob Fry, but, you know, whatever. I, I know people who know him who really like him. I know that. Re elected as mayor. Fry calls, now this is Fry saying this, okay? Re-elected as mayor, Fry calls election a turning point for Minneapolis.
2: Oh, jeez. Oh,
1: well, is that right, Jacob? You're
2: the turning point, are you? <laughs> well, he He did win handily. Wow. Well, it wasn't even oh, close. Did
1: yeah. Uh, did they even bother to run any other people other than Democrats in those deals?
2: No. they had. I he was imagine. running against two Democrats, and I don't think right. the DFL endorsed any of the c- candidates including him. Oh no, Which is that isn't right? that oh, unusual. No, but. I
1: suppose that's true. But in any case, so Jacob Fry is going to be your, uh, stay as your mayor and was, I've never met Jacob, but I was invited to a party that he was going to be at, but then it turned out I couldn't go, so I'm, one of these days I'll run across him, I'm sure.
2: A certain Italian guy from you know, Philadelphia I used to, uh, that tell me tells to me cover that he's, the election. Oops. No, go ahead, Mike. Sorry.
0: Uh, I, I was just going to say, I, you know, I used to cover City Hall.
1: Yeah, right when I first my met you, I In my
0: journalism think. days. And uh, it, one, of the, one of the elections that I covered, there was a, a token Republican candidate, uh, a professor, a guy by the name of Hathaway, a professor at the University of Minnesota. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was upset because he felt that we weren't giving him enough coverage. And, uh, you know, we, mainly he was upset at me. Um, well, the guy didn't do that much campaigning. But uh, but it's, he's probably right. I could have invented some stories about him. He, even then, there was no way that, that a Republican could win. But that was beside the point. Right. So uh, one day, in the in the midst of his uh, chagrin, he uh, he calls he calls a press conference, sends out press releases, and the, re- the headline of the release is. When dog bites man, it's not news. But when man bites dog, that's news. An old aphorism, I guess. So then he went on to say that he was on on Saturday afternoon. You know, good day because there's no news on Saturday. Saturday afternoon, he was going to uh, have a press conference, at which time he would make news with his uh, pet uh, shepherd, right? Uh Uh-huh. So... I didn't bother covering it because uh, they didn't want to pay me overtime, and so they sent a reporter over there. And the reporter the reporter did a story about him biting his dog, uh, gently biting his dog, you know, blah blah blah. So uh, a couple of days later, I write a, an analysis of the election, how it's going, how the, how the campaigning is going, and I say that uh, that uh, Hathaway has been uh, has been uh, so desperate for coverage that he actually uh, called a press conference, uh, which he bit his dog. Well, he demanded a correction. In fact, he demanded a retraction because he said he did not bite his dog. He said he only pretended to bite his dog. So this is where it gets good. He talks to the guy who was the reader's representative at the time, not my dad. My dad became reader's representative later. But this reader's representative spent like four hours at the uh, at the uh, WCCO-TV studios watching tape to try to determine whether it was a fake bite or a real one. Oh, my word. God. Uh, I said, kind of beside the point. <laughs> <laughs>
1: it really is. I said, oh, God, Mike. I, oh,
0: and he just, any. you know, he was just a, the poor guy. He he he, he just uh, bent over backwards. He He spent all day, and he didn't know what to do, and finally he decided... They would write a clarification, and uh because it was just impossible to determine right so I think, okay, well, this is cool. maybe I can do a little follow up on this so i call I call Hathaway, and i uh, I say, "Hey, you know, I just wanted to follow up on this. you know I, I think that seems like we're still it's still uncertain whether you bit the dog. I wonder if you have any comments he said I, I don't want to say anything to you, you know you haven't been good to me and I okay. said." Well, look, I said, just give me a little statement, and um, I'll just print it verbatim, as long as it's short enough. He said, all right, let me think. Okay, 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 yep. I'm going to give you a statement. You print it word by word. Every word has to be exactly what I said. I said, sure, that's fine. Cleared his throat, he said. At no time did I place any part of that dog in my mouth. Oh, my
1: God. Oh. Okay. actually
0: they wouldn't let me do the story. No, of course they didn't. No, not kind of a humorless bunch there. Well, ladies
1: and gentlemen, uh, to follow the lead of Mayor Jacob Fry, uh, this is going to be a turning point for the Tom Bernard podcast. John Vandemore, the turning point. Do you want to be the turning point, John? Sure, I can be the turning point. I like it. Uh, the, the, uh, the mayor just got re-elected in Minneapolis and he said, and I don't know him, he seems like, like I said, I know people know him, they like him, say he's a nice guy and all of it. so um, I'm not ripping him, but he did say that him being re, re- re-elected is a turning point for Minneapolis. Well, you're already mayor, so <laughs> how big a turn is it going to be? So, John, you're going to have to make a big turn in this show because we need to head down the right direction. John Vandemore, ladies and gentlemen, the book is called Rigged Justice, How the College Admissions Scandal Ruined an Man. Oh, my, this is not good news, John. What's this all about?
4: Yeah, so my book is about my story uh, through the Varsity loose scandal and how Stanford and the justice system um, really got me caught up in a situation that was impossible for me to forward on. John, it's amazing to me. So
1: your job, you were you were the sailing coach at Stanford University, is that correct?
4: That's correct, yep.
1: Ha, man, that's like a job you don't want to lose, John, I wouldn't think. Holy Hannah, what, that had to be a great job, man. It was. It, it was certainly a dream job, yeah. So how, how, where did you first hear about this? What happened? How did you even get involved? The sailing coach, how would you get involved in all
2: this?
4: I know it, it, uh, it still feels unbelievable and certainly unbelievable to, to me to be a sailing coach involved with this. But it all started with, uh, with Rick Singer um, and oh, him yeah. uh, confronting me and coming out to me. Um, and in, uh, really, when I worked with Rick Singer, uh, it was a completely innocent situation. It was you know him trying to find me recruits. Uh, then it became him becoming a donor, uh, which I thought coming from him uh, personally, not from anybody else. Right. And uh, then it all came to a head one morning when, at uh, 7 in the morning, when the FBI and IRS showed up on my doorstep oh, wow. um, and started questioning me.
2: I imagine you must be the first sailing coach that the FBI has ever interrogated. Uh, yeah,
4: yeah, I would imagine, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think that's true. I actually hope that's
2: true. <laughs> not a profession that one would associate with law breaking, normally, right?
4: you wouldn't think. No, no, absolutely not. Yeah.
1: Oh, uh, and why? So he did he just approach everybody in you know the, the, we got the sailing coach, we got the this coach, we got the that. Did he approach the entire coaching staff or uh, one by one? How did he do this?
4: So I don't know, and that is actually a really confusing part. So what Stanford yeah. has said, and that's all I can speak to, this at Stanford is that uh, he approached he talked with or worked with seven coaches at Stanford over 10 years. But apparently I was the only one that did anything wrong with him. Um, so it's uh, it's an interesting play. Who knows? But certainly he was involved with lots of different sports and a ton of different universities all throughout the country. Yeah, that's what I've come to understand. And
1: the weird thing for me, John, I'm, this is just I'm putting myself in his position. So I'm going to go to a bunch of Hollywood kind of semi- Stars, not I mean, there were a couple of big stars in there, but kind of semi stars. And I'm gonna tell them that I can get their kid into college if they give me enough money. And I don't know if you've ever met an actor, John, but they're not the most uh, trustworthy people I've ever met in my life. It seemed weird to me that he would entrust people who basically
4: lie for a living. Uh, it's yes, a lot of this seems really weird, that's why I never thought it was this or anything that could be this um, yeah I, I agree I think it's it's really weird that that's where he did this and, and also on the other side you know if you're Felicity Huffman or Larry Laughlin and you have millions and millions of dollars why don't you just donate the millions of dollars to the school outright and get your daughter into school that way yeah. um, and not have to work with Rick Singer at all
1: because they would have let him in right John I mean, if you donated enough dough pretty much any university is going to let your kid in I would think
4: Right. I mean, the schools obviously claim that that's not what they do, but yeah. we all know that's what they do. I mean, but, all those named buildings are there, right? So it, they could have just donated But what Rick Singer's argument was that he could do it for cheaper.
1: But he couldn't.
4: Not, well, he claimed that, but yeah, so we found out it wasn't really that
1: much cheaper. <laughs> yeah. What an amazing story. How you sit at home, if you're Rick Singer, and maybe you're... Lying in bed one night, or you woke up early one morning and you're laying in there they're going, Hey, here's a way I can avoid work for the rest of my life. I mean, that had to be what his driving force was, I imagine, is just how he could make out and make all this
4: money and then he'd just disappear and that'd be the end of it. Well, you know, I think he, he found, so obviously he's driven by his ego and right. he wants to have that stroke constantly. And you know, he found this real weakness with all the all these parents trying to get their kids into college and are really concerned about what college, you know, what name it has to be on. And he found this weakness with all these parents to say, oh, I can get you into this college and, and this is how you do it. And they, you know, bought it hook, line, and sinker. Yeah, they, and obviously he
1: was successful. He did get them into school. Uh, I want to read something, and I, and I want to hear your take on this whole situation because it's... Uh... Boy, what a story! Early one morning, everything came crashing down when Vandemore, uh, still in his pajamas, opened the door to find the FBI and the IRS agents on his doorstep. I want to shut up and just what happened then, John? Mike that was a little shocking, I bet.
4: Yes, yeah, not not how I, I pictured my morning going that morning. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it was it was incredible. Open the door. It was. Uh, you know, very surreal to see them in their pantsuits, you know, they, these two women showing badges. And I have, a, at the time it was a one and three year old. Um, so I'm like covered in, you know, whatever we tried to have for breakfast that morning and I left them in and I have no idea what this is about. Right. Like I, nothing, I'm the sailing coach. What what do right. I have right. to think about? I've not thought that I did anything wrong whatsoever. But there's a lot of other things happening at the same time. There's the the basketball FBI case that's going on. So I was like, oh, maybe they want to ask me about that. Who knows? So I do what I thought was the right thing and invite them in, offer them coffee and water and have them sit down. And for about an hour, it was just talking about the admission process. It wasn't really getting to the heart of the matter. And then all of a sudden, I started talking about Rick Singer. And really, I thought that they wanted me to be, Rick had done something wrong, and they wanted me, they were getting background, or they wanted me to witness against Rick. Until, towards the end of the conversation, they started accusing me of taking bribes. Um, And I was like, I don't even know what you're talking about. I asked them, what law could I have possibly broken? I don't understand this. Um, And they got really upset with me uh, and said that I was a horrible person and, and I've done all these bad things. Uh, and then I asked him at the end, I said, so are, am I under arrest? Like what's going on here? And they said, Oh no, no, nothing. But it's probably a good idea to get a lawyer. And my response was that, you know, I'm a sailing coach. I've never had a lawyer in my life. Um, I don't think I even know one. And so they, and I don't have any money for one. So they offered me a public defender and that's how the case started. Um, but it was a moment I'll never forget. You know, John, it's so
1: interesting. While listening to you, I thought back several years ago. Uh, nothing ever came of it, but uh, I was visited by the FBI on a uh, on a theft case. Not that I stole anything, but somebody I knew, apparently not not a friend, but somebody I knew, had been stealing money or whatever. And the weird part of this is, she comes. It's a woman in a pantsuit, by the way, John. So maybe it's the same FBI agent you had. I don't know, but she shows up in this yeah. this pantsuit. And for some reason, about halfway through, she, she got a little weird with me, right? I mean, a little strident, I guess, is the best. And I didn't do anything, I, you know, whatever. Like you. You're going, well, I didn't do anything, so I'm sitting yeah. there and I didn't do anything. I wasn't involved in this whole deal, um, whatever. And there was a pause, and she says to me, because I also do a, a morning talk show in town on the radio in, in Minneapolis-St. Paul. I have for 35 years. All of a sudden, she looks at me and goes, you know, I'm not a fan of your show. I'm like what? <laughs> I'm like, Why would you even bring that wow. up? I would, yeah, but John, that attitude that the, they they got with you—that's the exact same attitude she got with me. It's like, what are you? What are you talking about? Why? That's a weird thing they do. Why do they do that? I don't get it.
4: Yeah, I mean, from what I've learned uh, through this, and I, I kind of wish I'd never learned this, but really for my case in particular, I was sunk the let, the second I let them in the door
2: um, oh. because
4: they don't do tape recordings. Um, all they do is take their own notes. And so if I went to trial, then it's myself against, of course, every FBI agent is decorated um, would go up and it would be my, my take against their notes and they could write whatever they want in it. And it was clear, especially when they were really pushing me that they wanted to, put in their narrative and their set of facts, and not necessarily what the truth was. Um, it was my impression that they weren't right. really that interested in it. They wanted me to just to agree to their truth, and that was it.
1: But John, you, you already mentioned this, you didn't have any money, so what were they gonna get from you anyway?
4: I mean, well, how, how? why would they go after you? Because I worked for Stanford, and As this it, was their way to attack Stanford.
1: Well, didn't Stanford jump up and say, hey, we got we got to take care of John here, uh, Mr. Vandemore needs to be taken care of? Did, didn't this, the university step up and help
4: you? Not at all. Oh, in God. fact, they did the opposite. Um, uh. They reached out, the FBI and IRS reached out to, to Stanford first, and basically, I have no idea, and we'll never know how that conversation went, but basically convinced them to testify against me in a grand jury. And... So, they basically the way the FBI left is that I couldn't speak to Stanford and explain it and talk this through. Um, you know, I was an 11 year employee. I didn't, for everybody's admission, I didn't take any money myself. So, I'm the, the different coach from everybody else. So, obviously, I don't have any malice here. <laughs> you know, I'm not taking money. Everything, you know, as my judge put it, all the money went to my victim, which has got to be the weirdest fraud case in history. Um, so, it's. I'm stuck in this place, and Stanford basically just thought that was this was the easiest way out of this whole scenario is just basically throw me under the bus and say it's all me, this one coach did it, and that's it.
1: I, I still understand why Stanford said you did nothing. Why Why didn't they defend? That's weird that they wouldn't defend you.
4: Yeah, and it is, and I, I think what we looked well, what I look to it, and I could never prove it, but there is lots of connections with Rick Singer in Stanford itself. Oh um, God, there you from go. From the athletic director um, saying that he knows Rick. When I first brought the first check from Rick to to him, um, and to a men's basketball coach being the first one who basically called me and emailed me, following up on recruits that Rick was uh, sending me, saying, "Hey, you should work with this guy. I just want to make sure everything's going well." Um, It was clearly the guy that sent it to me. Um, And these guys are both still at Stanford and in fact have gotten promoted. Um, And you know, the Stanford decided to protect them and eject me. So John, I, I don't know how it feels,
1: but I can kind of imagine you're just doing your job. Like I said, the sailing coach at Stanford, what a great job it is, a great university, beautiful area in which to live. You got it all made, and because you tried to help somebody out, you got screwed. Right. I I just tried to do my job. Yeah, you tried to do your job. That's exactly right. I, I really, so basically, you just explained it to me. Stanford went after you to try to cover their own butt. Basically, oh, they'll go after John. They'll maybe leave us alone then. They just threw you under the bus. Right. So what what can you do now? Where do you stand now, John? Because that was a few years ago. So where do you stand now? So now I,
4: I finished all my, my penalties. Um, unfortunately, I will be a felon for the rest of my life. Um, but I've, uh, my career as a college sailing coach is over. Uh, it was really over the second this case became public. Um, but I've moved on to... I work as an engineer in Half Moon Bay, California. And I work in engineering and drinking water. And, you know, surrounded myself with people that I can trust and are loyal to me, and I'm loyal to them, and just part of a, a new small community. And that's how I like it. I, I don't want to work for a large corporation ever
1: again. I certainly understand that, John. I, I, and I, I, you know, as a, one human being to another, one American to another, I'm sorry this happened to you. There was no excuse for what they did to you. Yeah, thank you. It's all true. The book is called Rigged Justice of the College Admission Scandal Ruined an Innocent Man's Life. John Vandemor, It's V-A-N-D-E-M-O-E-R. John, thank you for your time today, sir, and I, and I hope life gets better, pal. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I appreciate you having me on. Thanks, John. John Vandemore, ladies and gentlemen. So, Mr. Galfan. Yep. What do you think of that story?
0: Well, you know, that whole scandal was so bizarre i as I understood it you know he he definitely he definitely didn't it wasn't like he accepted any money right but as I understand it he was essentially accused of of helping to funnel the money through the donor you know funneling it to the university right which uh you know it seems like it seems like uh you could argue was a, was a bad decision on his part, maybe just naivete, but, yeah, it doesn't seem like he's, you know, he's actually a felon. He shouldn't have been a felon.
1: I wouldn't think so. Now, you know, you've been in prison. How was that, Mike? <laughs> just kidding.
0: Tom, it's, it's, hell. <laughs> it's hell. But I'll tell you, the thing I did the first day, the first day that I was in prison, I just, I just went out, I found the... the the biggest guy I could find. He was about a 340-pound guy. Sure. He was. Uh, he was had, He was actually the head of the Aryan Nation. Well, of course, uh,
1: B- big with Jews. I know that.
0: And I just beat the crap out of him. I knew it. You Everybody had to show. Everybody left me alone after that. Yeah, you had to show him that you were the boss. That's what you have to do, Tom. You just can't Screw be afraid of these people.
2: What, what, was, your, I actually what was, was your prison nickname, Mike? Oh. <laughs>
0: Ma, um, uh, let's see. What would have been my prison nickname? Uh, I think. I think anyone anyone who can use a word over four syllables is called the professor.
1: <laughs> Mike, now that's very negative. But fun. You know,
0: so, I, I was doing a story once on uh, it was a, it was a court case that in I think some prisoners uh, some prisoners were suing to get better food. So Miles Lord, you remember Miles Lord? Absolutely. absolutely.
2: The great mining. judge.
0: judge. mining. And in, in his chambers, of course, I, I was married. He, Miles Miles Lord was sort of a renegade judge, and he right, uh, he right. officiated in in the in the uh, marriage ceremony. And um, I I once lamented to him that that uh, it was just my luck that in all the years he was on the bench, the decision he made for me was the only one that wasn't overturned. <laughs>
1: By the way, uh, I've already gotten several text messages about you being in prison, and it said, "I'm, I'm envisioning Mike Gelfand as Cage to Heat."
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's exactly. Well, you know, the thing is, the thing I got tired of were, was were all the love letters that were being sent to sure. followers.
1: Sure. You know, it was
0: kind of it's kind of like the Manson syndrome, you know.
1: Yeah. Oh God. But, yes.
0: but I did. I did. When I was doing this story, I did get to take a tour of the C Block. I believe it was called the C Block, and the most, yeah. it's the highest security block. Oh, sure, yeah. And um, I'll tell you, it, it wasn't pretty.
1: No, And the thing
0: not. was, I, as I understood it, uh, with the sunrise, the, uh, the drum beat started. Yeah. And the ovulations filled the air. Ooh, the
1: ovulations, I like that.
0: The uh, the the Native American tribe would you know engage in spiritual activities all day long, which of course involved in ululation and the beating on on drums, mm-hmm. bongos, whatever. I think that I'm guessing that my downfall would have been about two minutes after that started. I would have woken up, turned around, looked at these guys, and said, "Can you keep it down? I'm trying to sleep." <laughs>
1: You know, spending a little time in prison, uh, I wasn't uh, an inmate, but I used to go visit uh, friends throughout my life, uh, Stillwater and a couple other joints uh, that my friends would put inside. But the amazing thing to me, and I was always amazed by this, I'd be in the visitor's room, and there'd be other prisoners in there with their visitors, and every time I went to walk behind one of them, they'd push their chair back and block my way. The prisoners would. (laughs) They would every time. So I finally said, what are you doing, you dumb bastard? And he looks at me like, what? And I said, what are you doing? He goes, nothing, man. What are you talking about? And I said, move your chair. And he goes, once not you make me? And I said, listen here, Pally, I'm going home. You're not. Move your <laughs> goddamn chair. I will never forget. That guy looked at me like, oh, I guess you got a point. <laughs> I'm going to be here in a while longer if I keep this up. Yeah, even in prison, they're still tough guys. It's hilarious.
0: Well, probably even more so,
1: huh? Yeah, probably. That's just what you were talking about. You know, as one caged heat man to another.
0: <laughs> yeah, Yeah. All right. It's
1: a bond there. we got to take a break. Be right back more with Mike Gelfand, Doug Sprinthal, Car Selling Secrets coming up in just a little bit. I mean, we got it all. Cassie's here for Andy. Oh, by the way, I talked to Andy yesterday. Mm-hmm. I might be able to go in about another week. I'm like, oh, for Christ's oh. Here we. What did you stub your toe? <laughs> we'll be right back right after this. And we are back with stretches picks.
0: You know, Tom. Uh, there's a lot of analysis that goes into these picks. Yeah. And uh, I highly recommend betting. Of course, I always recommend betting.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, who's winning this thing? The kitties, the pack, the bears, or the purple?
0: None of the above.
1: Those are all the teams in the division. I know that. Well, who's your pick?
0: I'm going with Sabre Plumbing, Heating, and Air Conditioning.
1: What? It's not a football team.
0: I know, but it's a hell of an HVAC company. They do the most thorough system tune-up in the industry. Sabre is one of the largest Bryant dealers in the state, which means you save. Yep, I'm going with Sabre, Sabre and Bryant, doing whatever it takes to keep you comfortable.
1: It's also the smartest time to call and schedule your furnace tune-up
0: with Sabre.
1: Get the most thorough tune-up in the industry from the people who keep my home comfortable.
0: Oh, uh, one more thing, Tom. What's that? Visit SaberHeating.com.
1: Do they breathe easier with their business felt?
3: We certainly hope so, Tommy. And that's no hot air.
1: Nice one. Why not bank with my banker? North American Banking Company, a better banking experience, member FDIC, and equal housing lender. As you know, my friend Mike Lindell has a passion to help everyone get the best sleep of your life. We are back, ladies and gentlemen. Mr. Mike Gelfand with Ducks Rentals here. Cassie's here. So, Mike, we were just talking about, um, you know, basketball squads and all that kind of stuff and, you know, this, that, and the other thing. Uh, so I want to pass on my very quick story. <clears throat> Made the basketball team in eighth grade at St. Anne's over at Twenty Six and Queen in, uh, in North Minneapolis. And I... Uh, Doug actually brought this up, uh, that, that you know, he knows someone that doesn't get in the game too much, and that was pretty much me because I was the second tallest kid on the team. I was like six feet tall when I was in eighth grade, but Jim Brown was like 6'3". So taller. you were
0: the enforcer.
1: So That's right. That's exactly. I would I would come in because I was six feet tall, and I probably weighed about 210, something like that, Holy even though I was bucks. an eighth. I was a big kid. So I would literally just lean on everybody. Yeah. I, they would just have and to this cure. is in
0: seventh grade? Eighth grade. Eighth grade. Yep. I was just wondering because, you know, in seventh grade I, I was four foot six and weighed 65 pounds.
1: <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, you would have th- been
0: my bodyguard. I
1: would have paid you pretty good money. I would have been your bodyguard. But this is my very quickly my favorite story. So they get the team together. We won the Twin Cities Championship against St. Mark's over in St. Paul. And, you know, we just had a great uh, – and, again, whenever I went in, I think I shot twice and probably missed the backboard both times. But, uh, yeah, my job was to hang on people and tire them out, so Jim Brown come in and sure. just kicked the piss out of them because he was already a, a half a foot to a foot taller than they were, and they were tired and he wasn't, right? So uh, the head coach was also our eighth grade teacher, right? Real nice guy, really, really nice guy. So the Monsignors there... Uh, both priests are there. All the nuns are there. All the parents are there, right? This is a Catholic school in North Minneapolis. And he goes on the team and he goes, Mr. Ebert was his name. Great guy. Just a really good guy. So Coach Ebert goes, uh, let me just point you guys out one by one. Jim Brown, we couldn't have asked for a better center. I mean, my God, the size of you. And, and, and as an eighth grader, you were so dominant. I mean, this a lot of, a lot of this uh, trophy goes to you, man. This, you were You were amazing. Guy Laurent, uh, power forward, Uh, guy, unbelievable. You just played very well, scored. Bob Tyson, our uh, guard, bringing that ball down the court. It always got down the court safely. You did an amazing job. Tom Bernard, a pause. This is true. He goes, Tom Bernard. Jesus Christ. <laughs> right in front of the parents, the nuns, the priests, the uh, archbishop, or whatever the hell he was. He goes, Jesus Christ.
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I lipped off, off in ninth grade
0: practice.
2: I lipped off in ninth grade practice. And the coach called me a pseudo-intellectual, and you know what was really sad about that? He didn't know what it meant. I had to go home and look it up. Oh, you had to go I was in ninth grade.
1: Well, uh, yeah, pseudo-intellectual, yes, yeah, right, yeah. I thought he didn't know what no, it meant.
2: I think he knew exactly what it meant.
0: <sighs> but,
1: yeah, Mike, it was, uh, I don't, let me put it this way. They don't have a picture of me hanging at the school Saluting my basketball career at St. Anne's, although it's not, even, it's not even a Catholic school anymore. I think it's, it might be a Hmong school now, I think. Huh. I think it, that's what it is. I know there are, the, the church does Hmong services, that I know. So I'm assuming that's what the deal is, but uh, what a life, Mike, what a life. That's all I have to say.
0: It's, uh, it's been remarkable, and, uh, you know, I think uh, it, it's, it sounds like you were basically identified as a troublemaker right from the start.
1: Uh, kindergarten.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, what know. they didn't tell you was that, was that uh, being a troublemaker was going to make you a very successful person. Well, I suppose. Yeah, that's true. <laughs>
1: they didn't realize that I developed my trouble making it uh, so I didn't have to ever get a real job. <laughs> so that was good. I mean, that part of it was good. You know, and I to tell you the truth, I don't know where that even came from. I think my Uncle Augie, he was the one that was thrown off the building to his death. Mm-hmm. So he, he, oh, learned, yeah. he learned how to uh, smart off the building. So I learned a lot from... Well, this is a podcast. I can use this very quickly. You're going to have to edit it out. But my Uncle Augie, who died at 39 because he was thrown off a building to his death. Gee, I wonder what he did. <laughs> but he's at our house for my seventh birthday. Nice guy. Very handsome guy. He's like 6'2", 6'3". Real smart guy. Very handsome guy. Just real slick. But, I mean, he was, I mean, it wasn't mafia level, but he was one of those people.
0: right? <laughs> he had connections.
1: So he goes, hey, Tommy. I said, yeah, Uncle Augie. He goes, what time is it? I said, I don't know, Uncle Augie. He goes, well, why don't you call time on a telephone? Remember you could go FE 5-9000? Sure, yeah. Federal 5-9000, where well, you could get the time and the temperature. <laughs> so I call Federal 5-9000, and I listen, and I go, thank you, and I hang up. Now, this was a recorded message. Yeah. But I'm a 7-year-old right. kid. I don't know. I'm 7, right? Yeah. So I said, thank you, and I hang up. He goes, the hell did you tell her thank you for? I said, well, I just, you know, I wanted to be polite. And he goes to a seven-year-old kid It's a recording. Tell her to go fuck herself. <laughs>
0: <laughs> really?
1: <laughs> really, Uncle Good
0: Pretty smooth, don't you think, Mike? Uh, and of course, you, you took that as gospel. Yes, I did, because <laughs> I did it the rest of my life. I've been telling people to go fuck right. themselves. <laughs>
1: it all, all goes back to your uncle it all goes back to uncle Huggy he gave that,
0: you your it? life motto <laughs> he
1: did i have i have a motto in my life because of my uncle god i miss him though god he was so funny and he's an amazing guy
2: how would you like to have had that job being a mafia guy no at the tone the time will be 12:01. The time will be
1: actually i did At do the that. tone the i 12... did that in several markets really? yeah i did in several <laughs> markets. the time is 12.51 Yes, I did that many many That's years. That's the
0: ago. ultimate voiceover gig,
1: huh? Oh God, things like that, yeah. Because they had to pay you a lot of money to say all those numbers. I'll tell
0: you that. Now, when did you start? Uh, when did you start your disc jockey gig?
1: First one I had. I was 17 years old. I worked at KDAN over in St. Paul, 1370 AM, and the station's not even on the air anymore. KDAN was a now. Imagine this. Now, you have to also understand when I first started in radio. That I mumbled a lot,
0: because
1: mm-hmm. my original voice was not this voice. My original voice was like this. Oh, what are you going to do today? You going to go? Some, you want to go to lunch or something? I literally mumbled. That's You're what I did. Cool cat. My brother Tony still talks like that. Mm-hmm. I see Tony. Hey, Tony I said, what
0: would
1: you say? He says, well, how, what was I, I said, "What?" He goes. God damn it. Because <laughs> <laughs> you can't understand them. Yeah. So you can't yeah. understand me either. But uh, So very quickly, and I can't use all the language. Uh, sure
0: but,
2: you can.
1: Oh, no, I can't.
0: Oh, okay.
2: <laughs>
1: it's a country western station. And I go on and do the first part. Here's Dolly Parton and Porter Wagoner or whatever the hell it was, right? I'm doing that, right? The phone lights up. I mean, every line's lit up. Oh, my God. I'm like, they love me. This <laughs> <laughs> is going to be the greatest of all time. I answer the phone, K-D-A-N. Yeah, do me a favor. Get that big N off the air.
0: Oh. I thought
1: I was, they all thought, every caller thought I was black and wanted me to be fired. No,
0: oh, <laughs> Jesus
1: Jesus. Oh, well. Why did you just
0: spin some Charlie Pride?
1: I should have, but (laughs) don't spin a little Charlie Pride. That would have been a good idea. Oh, that was one of Toots' favorites.
0: You know what I was thinking about? Uh, You know, I I started out a while ago on the show, and I'll I'll do this some other day, but I started out uh, thinking about the Rolling Stones concert a couple weeks ago and how it led to my recent injury. But as I say, that's for another time. But wait, wait, wait! Inquiring minds want to know, Mike. Well, it's just you know we got to keep things moving, and uh, oh, and I'm not necessarily good at that. But um, I was thinking about the Stones concert at the Met Center, and thinking you were probably there, right? Uh, I was absolutely. And uh, and I was there. I was working as a reporter. And um, did you get uh, tear gas?
1: That was like 35 years ago, though, wasn't it, Mike? How many I think years it was ago? longer than that. Might have been 40 years ago. Yeah, you might be right yeah. about it. Oh, God, you know what? I think you're right. I bet you that was 40 years ago.
0: Yeah. Oh, and Jesus. And they were tear-gassing people. There was what was described as a riot.
1: Oh, yes, and I do remember that, yep.
0: And this was this was the concert that Stevie Wonder was the opening act. Yep and he played like a 20-minute drum solo to begin. And, uh, you know, if you didn't have a headache before, you would have had one after that. Especially, (laughs) here here are people who've been tear-gassed, and now they were subjected to a 20-minute drum solo, (laughs) and they wanted to see the Rolling Stones, and it was was pretty awful. So anyway, uh, I make my way in there after covering the scene outside, and the photographer that the newspaper had sent over a guy named Dom Black, he was, he was a good photographer, and I didn't know him well at all, but he was a good photographer. But he was one of those guys who just always looked dyspeptic, if you know what I mean. Sure. Kind of a grimace. And and obviously he was not happy being there at all. This was not his thing. So the concert starts up, Jagger's dancing around the stage, and they're playing Satisfaction and uh, or something like that. And, he, and Don Black comes over to me, and he's kind of shouting in my ear so I can hear him. And he's got this look of pain about him, and he says, Which one is Jagger? Okay. <laughs> I like that. I think thing. they sent the wrong guy over.
1: Yeah, he might not know what he was talking about. Is that what you're thinking?
0: You know, I, 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 I did kind of think that. And uh, I, I, don't, I think that was actually the only thing close to a conversation I ever had with him really i think so yeah
1: i suppose it's an outside deal um i there were two concerts mike and it it was one of the two is 1978 or 1981
0: Mm -hmm. so yeah it had to be 78 i think it was
1: 78 77 78 something like that i think you're
2: absolutely I, i have a question how do you get a job as a photographer for a newspaper And isn't your job to know who celebrities and stars and people
0: are? (laughs) You would think. You would think so. Now, of course, it's a lot easier today. You just go online. That's right. This would have required some tireless research.
1: You mean some work?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Just a little bit, yeah.
1: (laughs) A little bit of work. You know,
0: he might have been busy that day. I don't know. I, I thought it was kind of a funny question for many, many reasons.
1: Uh, I could see that, but thanks a lot for bringing up a concert I went to 45 years ago, Mike. Thanks a lot, appreciate it. Hey,
0: the memories. Memories, aren't they?
1: Yeah, that was my first year in the record business. Matter of fact, 1977. I just got. That's
0: probably why you uh, you probably had good tickets.
1: Oh God! We had great tickets. Absolutely. Remember, there was a big, there was a big runway that Mick Jagger would walk out into the crowd. Remember that? There was a big. Well, yeah. Yeah. I was sitting right next to that runway. It was pretty damn cool, actually.
2: I would have loved to have seen Stevie Wonder. Actually, I do, wouldn't not wanted to have seen a twenty minute drum solo no, by him, though. No. No. Like you wrote a fair number of good songs, and you can sing a little bit. Maybe you could do that.
1: I love Stevie Wonder. Yeah, he's
2: terrific. Indeed.
1: Yeah, the, the drum solo
0: maybe not so much, but. Yeah. 20 minutes, Mike, yeah. 20 minutes. It just went on and on, and, and uh, the crowd wasn't receptive. It, uh, Yeah, it was It was unfortunate. Um, I was going to go see the Stones when they were here a couple weeks ago, but mm-hmm. um, I don't know. There's something about being in an arena with 45,000 people that just doesn't appeal to me oh, right yeah, now. It's hard yeah. to believe, Mike, <laughs> hard to believe. <laughs> yeah, uh, I know, I know. Who would have thought
1: it? They didn't sell that show out, did you know that?
2: I did not know that. I
1: guess I heard we,
0: that, yeah. No shows are. Well, I can out. understand there there are a few people, especially Stones fans who have been Stones fans for 40 or 50 years. I went to a concert a couple of years ago just before the pandemic, mm-hmm. the last concert I was at. And I, and I don't mean the most recent. It was the last concert. Right. And uh so I was I was uh, I was looking forward to it. It was uh, Jason Isbell and the 400 band. He's tremendous act and um but what i didn't realize was this was at the palace theater in saint paul mm-hmm. oh, sure yeah
2: and
0: and what i didn't realize was that uh, i was going to have to stand for three and oh, a half you hours you
2: weren't up in the i've i've done that too and I, I i'm obviously a lot taller than you are but i still don't tolerate standing on concrete very well uh. for hours no and on. it was
0: it was body to body out there at the oh, floor. ish and naturally naturally i had you know, like like on, on my right, there was a guy wearing a heavy plaid shirt who had obviously just eaten an Italian meal just before coming. <laughs> oh, no, How'd you know that, Because the garlic smell. Oh um, and, sure, uh, yeah. And uh, and then his girlfriend was with him. The guy in front of me, of course, was about six seven, so I couldn't see. <laughs> And uh, you know, there's something about that where they look, to, you know, they want to stand in front of the shortest guy there. It's a state and,
2: law, actually. Yeah, probably.
0: Yeah. yeah, I think so. Yeah, and and the woman, the woman next to me, she's, uh, she was singing along. I don't understand this, Tom. I don't understand why pe- you could do that at home. That's you know, true. Why and, would you come? And so there's an intermission. Finally, an intermission. There's crowd's a little quieter and i look over at her and i show her my ticket and, and i said can you help me i'm she says what and i said well i'm looking at this ticket and it's confusing to me and she said what do you mean and i said well I, I don't see your name on it <laughs>
1: oh, my God. that went well
0: yeah she didn't uh she didn't suggest we get together for coffee or a drink afterwards she you know
2: mike part of the reason the stone's might not have been fully attended, is the age of the crowd. Have you ever watched Portlandia? Uh, yep, I've watched it. Mike, have you ever seen that show?
0: Yeah, I've seen it, yeah.
2: There's a great episode where it's a bunch of middle-aged people tailgating before Garrison Keillor's Prairie Home Companion <laughs> and they fall asleep in the parking lot and don't make it into the show.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, that'll Could happen. happen. Well, this is... Okay, so just give me a minute and I'll tell you what, what I was going to say earlier, and that is because of the Stones concert, I'm in a little pain. What happened was I, I couldn't go. I just I just couldn't go and be there with 45,000 people, but right, I right. kind of got into it, you know, and, and I've kind of been I don't mean this, it's not a pun, I, but I've been kind of in a Stones jag ever since, got it? you get it, Jag, so, get it. So, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so, I'm sorry. Cassie, it's so, a play uh, on Mick Jagger. That's what he's talking so I'm I'm figuring I'm much younger than Jack, right? If he can do it, I can do it. Sure. So I'm blasting I'm blasting my my mix my mix CD while I'm uh, you know doing stuff around the house and I'm grooving. I admit it. You you can you can probably appreciate I kind of break out into a little dance. Routine, sure, sure. You know, <laughs> because I'm that kind of guy and I'm grooving to satisfaction. Brown sugar, which to this day I think is a song about a sweetener, and uh, <laughs> yes. You know, let's spend the night together. Then then I hit jump and jack flash, okay? Now, I can't help but do the Jagger thing. Now, I'm dancing around the house to jump and jack flash. And as I'm doing this, uh, you know, kind of moving from room to room, I, I almost step on my cat. So I swerve to avoid the cat. My hip, my hip uh, uh, collides with the rocking chair. And then I fall. And I step directly on the defibrillator. <sighs> now my ankle's in bad shape. So I go to the minute clinic, where, of course, there's a three-hour wait, right? Somewhat ironic, don't you think? Yeah.
2: It's the minute clinic. <laughs> minute yeah, minute <laughs> clinic. There's nothing to do with I time. go to
0: the ER instead now. I figure that might be better. That's that's about a two-and-a-half-hour wait. and And I'm in the waiting room there with people who are, you know, probably really really sick and I finally get into the triage room and uh, the doctor says uh, well uh, uh, have you, uh, do you do you think you, you might have been exposed to anyone with COVID in the last 10 days I said how about the last two hours
1: <laughs> and I said,
0: yeah I guess you got a point there.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well good I'm glad to hear that <laughs> Oh God unbelievable So we only got about four minutes left in this uh, segment, Mike, so I want to get your attention. Now, what what I said about the elections uh, across the country was, uh, you know, I'm not a Republican, I'm not a Democrat, but I I like the fact that we're kind of moving toward the middle again. If we can just get both sides to move toward the middle, that would be really, really nice. Uh, Do you have have a takeaway from anything that happened on uh, Tuesday? Well, I don't think there's a
0: middle.
1: No God. See, that's the problem, Mike. There, there, probably isn't a middle, so we could invent one, maybe.
0: Right. Well, maybe someday, but probably not. No, um, probably I, not. I think that I, I think the trend is kind of irreversible. But oh, you know, I'm, I hope I'm wrong. Things were kind of nice uh, back. You know, I was when I was born in the fifties. Uh, of course, I wasn't too much aware of politics then, but reading about it and looking back. Those were days when party affiliation was not such a big thing, and, and right. ideology wasn't even such a big thing. Right. You know, uh, Eisenhower was president in the early fifties and uh, early to late fifties. And you know, Eisenhower, he when he decided to run for president, he didn't even know whether he was going to run as a Republican or a Democrat. Right. Right. And so you know that couldn't happen today. That 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 just couldn't happen. So I don't know. The pendulum seems to be swinging back, and um, but I do think it's a little too early to to say that the uh, Republicans are going to sweep in the uh, off-year election. Well, yeah, I, I, I think mean, it's, it's
1: well, another year. I think
0: they're in good, pretty good shape, but you know, we'll, we'll we'll have to wait and see. I think the Democrats' biggest problem is that they're being they're kind of being sabotaged from within right now. I mean, on, yes. the, on the federal level,
1: they are yes
0: and and but locally of course uh, i think jacob fry represents a, a pretty much he's pretty much represents the middle uh, certainly in the context of of minneapolis politics.
1: I, I think so yeah I, you know like i said i've never met him but i know a bunch of people that know him and they really like the guy i don't know like a, i don't know anything about him
2: i saw a really yeah, interesting I'd, I'd, interview on i think so the morning kstp i think morning tv it was a black guy in a barbershop, shop probably our age roughly in his 60s and they were talking about uh, the person that won in the fourth district. That's for more, you know, police protection and so right, on and so right. forth. And he goes, you know, you got to understand, there's a paradox. We are inordinately picked on by the police, uh, but we're also inordinately murdered by our neighbors. Yeah. So. that's yeah, true. And it's like, yeah, I'm glad. You, I'm glad that you actually said that. That's so, because it's not a simple solution.
1: It's not a simple no. solution, but we have to do something about crime and I don't give, give a damn what your skin color is. We gotta back off on this crime thing, man. It's way yeah, out of it's
0: line. going on all across the nation. It is,
1: yeah. There no question. And it's about it's
0: one more reason why the uh, especially for men, why life expectancy has just plummeted since the pandemic yes. started.
1: It has. For especially for men. You're right about that. Yeah. I have not run into anything. People I know have been running into, you know, to run into this deal and that deal. I, I I don't think I've had any problem with anybody as far as, you know, acting up during the pandemic and all that stuff. Now, Catherine, we have one minute i got to tell you. My lovely wife, I adore her, found out from a neighbor that uh, somebody was tailgating the piss out of Catherine. Mm-hmm. Catherine right. locked him up, got out of the car, went back, get the hell out of the car right now. And this yeah. person's looking at her like, and she goes, I said, get out of the car! <laughs> Well, honey, you're not George Foreman. You want to calm down. Right? Very good. <laughs> you want to take it easy. Yeah, apparently she didn't like being tailgated too much. Mm-hmm. She got very pissed off. I've like
2: driven it. with your wife a couple of times, and she is the road rage queen. It's so funny <laughs> because you know she's so generally easygoing about yes. life, but yes.
0: I know she's just pleasant, innocent. Yeah. <laughs> were get out of the car, Treasure
2: Island. To go into dinner, and some guy <laughs> in a ten-dollar Corolla cut her off. And, <laughs> and I thought she was going to explode. Oh
0: yeah. All I can say is I would not recommend that in this day and age as a form of conflict resolution.
1: No. Yes, I would agree with you hundred percent on that one. <laughs> we'll take a break. Be right. What's coming up next?
2: Dog? Katie Richter with car selling secrets. She is in the lobby. You don't know that. I do too. I've been texting. What do you think I've been doing? I've been doing my job, Mr. Doing my job.
1: Car selling secrets up next.